0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 12. Hi there, folks. Welcome to another edition of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City shared story universe. You can find out more about Metamore City at metamorecity.com. There are more than 50 past episodes there for your listening pleasure including the award-winning podcast novel Making the Cut, which features a full cast, music, and sound effects. Check it out if you haven't already. I hope you all enjoyed last week's interview with T. Morris and Philippa Ballantyne. There will be more author interviews in the months to come, but now it's time to get back to the fiction. So, let's get to today's story. Today I'm reading you the first part of a Metamore City novella called The Cuckoo, this story has been available in ebook for a while, but it has never appeared in podcast before. In fact, before this, the only people who ever heard me read The Cuckoo Aloud were a small band of devoted metamorphs who attended a late night reading at Balticon several years ago. I had always intended to release this story as part of Metamorph City's Season 2, but there are a lot of accents in this one, and finding the right actors for all the parts turned out to be a challenge. Since the protagonist of this story is also an important character in Things Unseen and The Lost in the Least, I figured it was time to share it with all of you. This story is about 16,000 words long, so I'll be breaking it into four parts for the podcast. Fair warning, this story contains sexual situations and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. The Cuckoo, by Chris Lester, part one. As I lay in the Baron's bed, my arms around his beautiful wife, I found myself actively wishing that the dawn would never come. It was sort of a new experience for me. It wasn't as if there weren't ample reasons to leave. Quite the opposite, actually. And hey, look where I was now. Mission accomplished. Praise be to my lady, glory hallelujah. Still, it was different this time. This one would stick with me for a long time, I could tell. Fair Delilah, you wormed your way into my infernal little heart. And not just because chasing you nearly got me killed. Let's back up, shall we? Hi there. You can call me John. Don't bother asking John who, because the answer's going to be a lie no matter what I tell you. I used to have a last name. It was a nice one, too. The kind that comes with heraldry and servants and penthouse suites and trust funds that rival the budgets of small nations. Yes, sir, I was all set up for a lifetime career as one of those useless noble scions, frittering away my parents' fortune on drugs, booze, and and hot-and-cold running women. I would have been damned good at it, too. The paparazzi could have fed their families for years on my antics. Decades, even. It was a nice dream, but, alas, not one destined for me. My access to the family jewels got cut off as soon as Daddy found out that I hadn't been spawned from, well, the family jewels. Given that I was his only male heir, they might have been willing to keep that under wraps. If I had been human. But when you're from a family that prides itself on its genetic purity, and your son turns out to be an incubus, yeah, that's the sort of thing that gets you disinvited from parties. The political kind, as well as the social kind. So, they gave me the boot. Excoriated is the term they use in the old noble houses. There's a fascinating story about that, and maybe I'll tell you about it sometime. But in the broad strokes, I'm just like any other kid ever sired by an incubus, You see, kids born to succubi are raised knowing what they are. Lucky bastards. But incubi are like cuckoos. They plant their children in someone else's nest and let them grow up thinking they're human. Then, sometime after they hit puberty, they absorb enough lustful energy from the people around them that they change, turning into full-powered inkies and suckies. The smart ones manage to keep their powers hidden, The dumb ones start pulling auras on people left and right, seducing every hot guy or chick in sight, and eventually end up on the business end of a Lightbringer's sword. Me, I split the difference. When I got outed, only five or six people knew my secret, and they all had reasons for keeping it quiet. My nominative parents let me finish uni, then sent me packing with a measly 50k in an order to keep my big mouth shut. Like I said, not too different from the usual. Delilah comes into the picture fifteen years later, and that's where things get interesting. I first spotted her from clear across the room at House Brightleaf's annual winter ball. She huddled in the lee of a grand staircase, looking as miserable and forlorn as a wet kitten. The hall was probably about twenty degrees standard, which is a fine spring day in Metamore, and a bloody extravagance when you're heating a room with ten meter ceilings in the middle of January. Also, most of the brightleafs are foxmorphs, and twenty degrees is about as warm as you'd ever want it when you're wearing a fur coat. But this dear lady was no theriomorph, and she clearly wasn't from around here. Her dark olive skin and lustrous black hair stood out dramatically amid the pale South Morans and Kitchlanders who made up most of Metamore's ruling class. She looked to be in her early thirties, with elegant features that were still lovely even in the midst of her distress. She wore a sleeveless evening gown of royal blue, with a high neckline and a knee length hem that was slashed dramatically up the side of the right leg. It was both stunning and utterly out of fashion, at least in this part of the Empire. The white shawl she clutched around her shoulders was equally gauche, and didn't seem to be doing nearly enough to ward off the cold. The other guests seemed to be studiously avoiding her, as if her social ineptitude would somehow infect them if they got too close beautiful, alone and vulnerable. For an incubus, that's like tying a stake around your neck. My mouth watered just looking at her. I put on a gentle, concerned expression and approached her. She glanced up at me when I came within 2 meters, then looked away. Apparently, she expected me to say something cruel or ignore her like everyone else had done. I do so enjoy surprising people. Are you all right, milady? You look chilled. She looked up at me then, her expression startled. What? I gave her that gentle smile again, and nodded to her respectfully. I asked if you were well, milady. Forgive my impertinence, but I couldn't help but notice that you seemed to be in some discomfort. Shall I fetch you anything, A doctor? She blinked, then returned my smile with a rueful edge. Thank you, no, I will be all right. It is just so very cold is all. I could hear the sweet undertones of a tornish accent in her voice. She'd done her best to banish it, but it was there. "'In that case, allow me to offer my jacket,' I said, slipping off my coat and holding it out to her. "'The cold doesn't bother me much. "'Nor did the heat, in point of fact. "'As a daydra. I can be naked at twenty below, or in a wool suit at fifty above, "'and it doesn't bother me in the slightest. "'But it would have been indiscreet to mention that to the lady.' She slid on the coat with a look of immense gratitude. Thank you. I am in your debt, Lord. John, I said, bowing to her. John Tiffrey, second son of Baron Gamaliel Tiffrey of Menth. All of which was a lie, of course. Young Lord John was invited to the winter ball, but he was indisposed for the evening. It seems that a particularly energetic romp with a cute little blonde had left him so drained that he would sleep soundly until morning. Uh, Have I mentioned that Incubi can shapeshift? Well, we can, and I'm nothing if not flexible, in all senses of the word. Point being, it would have been rather bad form if John didn't show up, and great humanitarian that I am, I was happy to take his place. So far, even his own father hadn't noticed the difference. Thank you, Lord John, the lady said. I am the Baronessa Delilah Velasco de Moraine. It is a pleasure to make your acquaintance. She extended a hand, palm downward, and I kissed it. The pleasure is mine, I said. Moraine, would that be Baron Vincent Moraine of Cardale? I'd heard that Baron Moraine had had a wedding recently. If this was the bride in question, he'd married up. The same. Her voice was calm, without inflection, but the muscles around her eyes tightened slightly. Moraine is a distinguished house with a proud history, I said. I'm surprised to not see the Baron with you. Is he ill? Delilah grimaced. No, he is upstairs. She gestured with her chin at the staircase, discussing politics. She almost spat out the word, and I filed away that tidbit for future reference. Ah, yes, there's an election coming up this fall, is there not? She nodded wearily. My lord husband is hoping to win one of the open peer seats in the Metamorian Senate. He is most enthusiastic about it. Ah, well, best of luck to him, then. It's so good to see other nobles taking an interest in public service. I waggled my brows at her. Saves me from having to do it. She laughed. I take it you do not like the great game very much. Heavens no, I chuckled. I'm a creature of the arts myself. Delilah raised her eyebrows in a look of genuine interest. You paint? Well, yes, but only badly, I admitted. I'm better with music and dancing. I craned my neck over the crowds to look out at the ballroom floor. It was still early in the evening, and the great organized dances had not yet begun, but the musicians were already playing softly in the background as the guests milled around chatting. Speaking of dance, would you join me on the floor tonight? "'Assuming your husband is unavailable, of course.' I smiled sheepishly. "'I'm afraid I'm without a partner tonight.' She lowered her eyes and blushed. "'I don't know.' "'What's the matter?' I took her hand and squeezed it lightly. "'I've never known a tornured who didn't dance.' "'It's not that. I just... The dances that you do here are very strange.' She blushed. "'So stiff, so formal.' so many rules. I lose my place, forget the steps. Her voice fell to almost a whisper. The last time I tried, they laughed at me. They tried to hide it, but I could hear them. I felt a pang of genuine sympathy for her, and an utter disgust at the Baron. He had won the hand of this beautiful foreign flower, only to drag her to these parties and then abandon her to the predations of gossips and social climbers. I had found my mission here just in time. I'm sorry, I said. The Metamorian peerage can be terribly cruel to outsiders. I fear that many of us have forgotten the reason these balls and festivals were created, as a celebration of life. Yes, she said, as if I'd just voiced something she believed in fervently but had been too shy to say. Exactly so. Why must everything be about who is better than someone else? Why must we make others feel worse to feel better about ourselves? She shook her head. It is not so in Torn. There we have a saying. Companions divide sorrows and multiply blessings. I smiled. A good saying. But another adage also comes to mind. Trouble comes calling of its own accord, but joy waits for an invitation. I ran my eyes over the room until I spotted the master of ceremonies, his red fur standing out dramatically amid the pale winter colors worn by most of the guests. "'I have an idea, but I must speak to that gentleman about it. By your leave, milady. Delilah seemed reluctant to let me go, but I could tell she was curious about what I had in mind. She nodded, and I headed over to bend the fox's sizable ear. "'As I hope is apparent by now, I don't rely on my supernatural abilities every time I want something from someone. Often a little mundane diplomacy gets the job done just as well—' and without running the risk of garnering the attention of large men with pointy bits of enchanted steel. In this case, it took a few minutes of chatting with the M.C. then a few more minutes to clear the matter with Count Herschel Brightleaf, the elder lord who was hosting the ball. The old fox got a twinkle in his eye when I explained my idea. The Brightleafs have a long and proud history of bucking the status quo, Which isn't all that surprising, given that the founder of their house carried a double-bladed axe into battle, and was known for wearing a necklace made from the ears of his enemies. Anyway, once I had the Count's blessing, it was easy enough to arrange matters with the musicians. If anything, they were more enthusiastic than I was. I was back at Delilah's side within fifteen minutes. Sorry for the delay, I said, handing her a martini I had snagged from a servant on the way back. She nodded her thanks and took the drink. Did everything work out like you planned? I showed her a wry smile. We'll find out soon enough. Just then, the MC came up to the stage and announced the official start of the night's festivities. He spent several minutes welcoming the most important guests, announcing their titles and honors while the rest of us answered with polite applause. With the ass-kissing portion of the program now completed, the younger Brightleaf stood a bit straighter and smiled. Now it is my pleasure to announce the opening of the winter ball, he said. Gentlemen, please escort your ladies to the dance floor. I offered my arm to Delilah. Would you do me the honor, my lady? I promise you won't want to miss this. After a moment's hesitation, she took my arm and walked out with me, handing my jacket back to me on the way. As we took a spot near the front of the dance floor, the M.C. spoke again. I have consulted with Count Brightleaf and it is his wish that we deviate somewhat from the ball's usual repertoire. In addition to the usual fast waltz, slow waltz, quadrille, and minuet, the evening's festivities will include other styles of dance from around the Empire. The Count hopes that this will engage the interest of our younger guests and give everyone the opportunity to truly enjoy themselves. Delilah caught my eye and gave me a questioning look. I winked at her. Up on stage, the musicians pulled out a pair of aerophones. My Tornish lady spotted them and stared in astonishment. The MC confirmed her suspicions a moment later. The first dance tonight will be a tango in the traditional Tornish style, he said. Any couples who wish not to participate should please move to the edges of the dance floor. Most of the older nobles moved out of the way, some of them muttering under their breath about that mad old fox and his antics. At the same time, a crowd of younger lordlings hastened to join us, their eyes bright with anticipation. Delilah just looked at me, with a mixture of admiration and incredulity. You did this in fifteen minutes? I shrugged. I know this band well. They play at many of the less formal parties put on by the young people. I think you'll find that the next generation is a bit more open-minded about their choice of dancing styles. I gave her my most dazzling grin and took off the jacket again, handing it off to one of the servants. Shall we show them how it's done? She answered my grin with one of her own, a dazzling display of dark, sparkling eyes and perfect teeth. Try to keep up with me, Lord John. The music began, the violins and aerophones taking the lead. Delilah and I entered the close embrace, my left hand joined with her right, as I slipped my other hand around her back. The opening strains of the song led into the familiar 4-4 rhythm, and we began to move, stepping in time with each other and the flow of the music. I had danced with many people over the years, everyone from a stately old marchioness to the teenagers bumping and grinding at a street-level rave. None of those experiences compared to dancing the tango with Delilah Moraine. All of her self-consciousness and uncertainty fell away like a moth-eaten blanket— exposing the proud and passionate spirit underneath. She followed my lead on the dance floor with an awareness that was nearly telepathic, spinning, turning, and wrapping her body around mine with sensual, liquid grace. The slinky dress that had looked so woefully out of fashion now worked to her advantage, for it allowed her a freedom of movement that the women in longer gowns couldn't even dream of. We prowled around the floor like a pair of jungle cats— our presence commanding such attention that some couples left the floor in order to watch us. Delilah's aura crackled with sexual energy, invisible but impossible to ignore. I soaked it up like a plant soaks up water, and what I tasted only made me hungry for more. At some point we left the line of dance and found ourselves in the center of the circle. I spun her through the air in a saltito and lowered her to the floor, where she twirled away from me to arm's length. I caught her hands, stopping her spin. Her legs flashed in and out, back and forth in a dramatic show of footwork. Then, without missing a beat, she wrapped one leg around my back and hooked me back in, a bold and dramatic move that left many of the younger dancers cheering. I stepped her through a few more turns, trading steps into each other's space, then let her slide between my outstretched legs. She wrapped herself around one of them in a full turn and ended up on one knee in front of me, as her hand drew my head down close to hers. The song ended there, with our bodies entwined and our lips so close that I could taste her breath mixing with mine. I looked into her dark eyes and saw her pupils dilate with arousal. If it hadn't been for the cheering crowd around us, she might have let me take her there and then. Instead, she smiled and whispered, Thank you. You're welcome. I rose and helped her to her feet. We exited the dance floor under the disapproving glares of the old guard and the appreciative hoots and whistles of the young people. Delilah ignored them all, looking utterly radiant as we made our way over to one of the refreshment tables. After the exertion of the tango, we avoided the alcohol and went for bottled water instead. I glanced around the room as I cracked open the cap and took a drink. So, do you think your husband saw any of that? Delilah scoffed, waving her hand dismissively. Vincent does not care about the ball. He is here to hunt for votes, nothing more. He will not come down until it is time to leave. More's the pity, I said. If the man would get on a dance floor with you, he might realize there are more important things than politics. She smiled at the compliment, but her eyes turned sad. Perhaps. Just then, one of the young couples we had been dancing with came up to congratulate us. Delilah smiled and chatted with them for a few minutes, but hesitated when they invited her to their home for a dinner party in February. She finally told them that she would need to clear it with her husband first, and they seemed to accept this. The young lord gave her a business card with his contact information before they politely excused themselves. Delilah stared at the card for a moment, then held it up in front of me. "'This is a minefield. I go here?' and how long will it be before I say or do something that offends them? They like me tonight, thanks to you, but do they truly want to be my friends, or are they only interested because I am, um... Exotic, I suggested, dryly. She snapped her finger and pointed it at me. Exactly. I am, uh, a curiosity. I couldn't help it. I laughed at that. <laughs> my lady, Metamorph City plays host to everything from Orambian sorcerers to fallen gods. Our host for this event is a sixty year old anthropomorphic fox. Curiosities are a deck a dozen here. She blushed, raising her bottle to me in a salute. I see your point, but this does not change my problem. I frowned and stroked my chin, as if thinking carefully. I had her exactly where I wanted her, but I couldn't appear too eager. I may be able to help you with that, I said. I told you before that I work in the arts. One of the ways I make my living is as a private dance instructor. Perhaps we could meet, say, three days a week, so I could teach you some of the more formal dances you've been having trouble with. Along the way, I could also instruct you in the finer points of Metamorian etiquette. I grinned. I think I can show you how to navigate some of those minefields. Her eyes went wide. Would you... That would be wonderful. When could we begin? I shrugged. When is your husband away from the house? We will need several hours of uninterrupted time, and I wouldn't want to take away from your time together. She rolled her eyes. Between the selection race and his holdings in Cardale, he is away more often than he is home. She gave me the address for their penthouse suite. Come tomorrow afternoon at one o'clock. The servants will let you in. Perfect, I said. I pulled a business card out of my pocket and handed it to her. If you need to reschedule, call me at this number. She looked down at the card, frowned, then looked back up at me. It says here that you are Mr. Jonathan Vance, dance instructor. I nodded. Indeed it does. So, why does it not say Lord John Tiffrey? I gave her my best reassuring smile. Lord John is only a persona made for public consumption. This face, I said, gesturing at myself, is not my real face. Jonathan Vance is another persona who serves another role. To outward appearances, there is nothing to connect them to one another. And that's the way I like it. She nodded slowly, comprehension dawning on her face. So this Vance is who you become when you are tired of playing the Baron's son. See, that's one of the things I love about my job— There's nothing quite as satisfying as telling someone the truth in a way that leads them to completely the wrong conclusion. "'Basically, yes,' I said. Her dark eyes glittered. "'So, who is the real you, John? "'Who are you when you are not pretending to be something else?' I took her hand and raised it to my lips, then gave it one slow, meaningful kiss. I felt her shiver under my touch.' and I looked up at her through heavily-lidded eyes. Perhaps you'll find out tomorrow, I said. And that was part one. Tune in next week to hear more about who John is working for, and what he's after. Now it's time for the Weekly Writing Report. My goals are to write for at least six hours per week, and a minimum of 350 words per day. I keep track of my daily word counts on the Magic Spreadsheet, a gamified writing tracker that awards points for consistent daily progress. You can find it on Google Plus by searching for the Magic Spreadsheet. I wrote 4,714 words this week over the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 943 words per hour. That's my fastest average writing speed yet. I didn't quite reach my six-hour writing goal, but I'm continuing to make progress on writing faster, and I've now gone two full months without breaking my chain. The Three Graces is nearing completion of the first draft. I'm now up to about 14,000 words, and I feel like the climax is taking shape. I have a couple of plot snarls that I still need to untangle, though, and I want to do some careful editing for consistent narrative voice before I release it on the podcast. That's why I didn't start releasing it before the story was finished, like I did with To Walk in Shadow. As I've said before, this story is an experiment. It may not work as well as I hope it will, and if not, that's okay. You don't learn unless you're willing to take chances. Still, I think it's worth taking a little extra time and care to make sure I do this one right. Feedback was sparse this week, probably because I took last week off from new story content. Alan Palmer messaged me on Twitter to say, You are doing a fantastic job. Just keep going. Hugh O'Donnell tweeted, I just finished Etherius' excellent Elysian Springs story, Flying Free. No, you were crying at work. Thanks, guys. I'm glad you enjoyed it. There's about a week and a half left in the Kickstarter for Elysian Springs, and we still have a long way to go, even after Kickstarter made us a staff pick. We need you to help spread the word to all of your superhero-loving friends if we're going to reach our funding goal. If you want to see my story flying free in print, along with new stories from T. Morris, Gail Z. Martin, Jared Axelrod, and more, please head over to Kickstarter and make a pledge today. And if you're one of those who have already contributed, thank you for your support. One more thing I want to mention before I close the feedback section for this episode. I need your reviews on iTunes. If you're enjoying the show and would like to help others find it, please follow the link in the show notes and enter a customer review on iTunes. This is the single biggest thing you can do to get the word out about The Raven and the Writing Desk. Many, many listeners still use the iTunes store to find what they're going to listen to next. So if we can get the show onto the front page of results, it will go a long way to help people find it. So when you're done listening to this episode, please take just a few minutes to tell people what you think of the show. I really appreciate your support. If you'd like to leave feedback for the show, you can send a message in text or mp3 audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641, 715-3900 and enter extension two five five zero eight two, followed by the pound sign You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my Twitter handle is ethereus E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S My author blog is at chrislester.org If you'd like to join in discussion with other fans, check out the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group or join the discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That will do it for this week, folks. Tune in next time for more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The material in this podcast is copyright 2009 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press.